A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Sometimes hard issues need a light touch. I'm Jenna Friedman, and this is Soft Focus. In tonight's episode, we explore love and connection. But first, rape. Hello and welcome to The Last Laugh. My guest this week is the hilariously deadpan Jenna Friedman. Jenna spent three years as a field producer on The Daily Show, collaborating with correspondents like Samantha Bee, John Oliver, and Michael Che, among others. Now she has taken the skills she learned at Comedy Central and exploded them into soft focus her provocative new series of specials on Adult Swim, which used dark humor to tackle issues like campus rape and the Gamergate controversy. On today's show, we'll talk about what it was like to make that transition from behind the scenes to in front of the camera, where she seems to perfected the art of getting people to embarrass themselves on television. With her uniquely feminist spin on the type of confrontational comedy that has traditionally been performed by men like Sasha Baron Cohen and Nathan Fielder, Jenna has created something truly original that I highly recommend everyone check out if you haven't seen it. Seriously, it was one of the funniest things I've watched in a long time. So let's get right to it. This is The Last Laugh with my guest, Jenna Friedman. Jenna, I am so excited to have you here because I watched your show and I will admit that I was probably a little late to it, but it totally just blew my mind and I loved it. So I'm I'm very excited to, to have you here. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess just to start, I would love to know how this show came about, Soft Focus. What, how did you pitch it? Sort of, what was the what was the process like? Should I talk in the Elizabeth Holmes voice? <laughs> <laughs> We're trying out a new voice just to like you know make sure. Um, uh, how uh, the show came about? Um, Adult Swim reached out to me like two years ago. And they wanted to do something. And they actually saw, I had this um, little web series online about a woman falling in love with a serial killer. Mm -hmm. And they were, I think they saw that. And they were like, do you want to do something involving that? And while it is funny, and I'm working on a feature actually along the lines of love and and murder, um, I had another idea and that was uh, soft focus-ish. And so... I pitched it to them and they were into it and then we shot a bunch of stuff and then through the development process the show emerged like it started out as a desk show Mm -hmm. and to their credit they were like there are a lot of desk shows Um, maybe it shouldn't be a desk show plus it's like a (laughs) one-off and I was like is it? does it have to be? no (laughs) Um, and so then Soft Focus emerged yeah, I mean, I think for you, you you obviously you know spent a lot of time working kind of behind the scenes on on the Daily Show and and elsewhere, but you've also done a lot of stand up. So this is kind of a big move for you in front of the camera. Um, what was that like, uh, just for you to kind of do that sort of semi for the first time? Well, I mean, I did uh, in front of the camera stuff um, years ago, and it was always something I can. I think when you're a stand up, it's kind of like what you're aiming for. But then in New York, I just was getting jobs behind the scenes. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I wrote for Letterman and then got that job at The Daily Show. So um, 
it it didn't feel like it was like a transition that felt um, tra- challenging in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there have been some comparisons um, this show to um, things like Sasha Baron Cohen's work and Nathan Fielder's work, but I think you're coming at it from a very different perspective. So I'm I'm curious, how do you feel like your approach? is either inspired by people like that or different from from those types of shows? Well, unlike Sasha's show, it's it's a character, but it's not like a big character. Mm -hmm. So I think I can't rely on disguises. I just have to rely on the anonymity I've worked so hard to achieve in my 13 years (laughs) of comedy. You know, making sure your stand-up is just polarizing enough that people don't take a chance on it. (laughs) And so I've worked really hard on that, and thankfully (laughs) it's helped cultivate this air of no one knowing me, and and that actually helps this show a lot because I think when people know you're a comedian, even when we were at The Daily Show working with people who knew The Daily Show, you still had to try to make sure that they weren't like, hammy because when people think something's funny their version of funny is different than yours a lot of times if they're not comedians and then they they become like hammy and it's hard to actually get their honest thoughts and reactions in the moment in these kinds of field pieces Mm -hmm. um so and i love nathan so much i love his show it's one of my favorite shows ever um uh but this one i do think is is more like in the vein of like a social justice type show so in terms of you're maybe trying to achieve something different from what he is trying to achieve well i don't know i can't speak for nathan i think his show is brilliant um i'm sad that it's over yeah me too um but i think that you know this is kind of an extension of my work at the daily show Mm -hmm. um it's a little bit uh we kind of push the boundaries a little more than i would be allowed to do when I was at the Daily Show, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's kind of and I and I love that. I mean, I I think the format ha- echo has like uh, hints of the Daily Show, which I think is really helpful for us because it's something that people recognize, but then it kind of takes it a little, it takes it to a different place. Yeah, I mean, I I think the big question with shows like this is that people ask is how do you get these people to talk to you? And you know, obviously, I don't want you to kind of give away the the secrets. Um, but you mentioned that they don't know who you are, they're not familiar with you, and that helps. But are you going in as a comedian? Or are you really trying to kind of say, this is a new show and and kind of fool them in that way? Or, or how does that how does that work? Well, with McAfee, I mean, he knew exactly who I was. Or, yeah, John or... McAfee, the uh, the libertarian uh, presidential candidate software. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we gave him all the info because we were on his compound and they all had guns, so we're not going to, like, pull a fast one. But yeah. I don't know if he says he knew, but it didn't seem like he knew when we got there until, like, the end, then he was, like, he loosened up. But at the beginning, part of, like, that whole run about like newsman versus news person mm-hmm. versus like the kind of me like slightly ribbing him about that only came from just being on set with him and he wouldn't look at me he was talking to our male producer <laughs> and it just kind of I was like you know you don't even know I mean just it just that's why I kind of teased him because and I do think it's not his fault 
But, you know, he did think I was like just a person that they hired. So that's mm. why I was teasing him a little bit about that. Let's talk about McAfee 2.0. What's that? You now. I would call it 400.0 or something. I mean, I have reinvented myself. But you call it too. That's fine. That, that would be the newsman's perspective. News person. News person. What does that mean? Uh, women also work in the news. So news man is kind of reductive. I know, but listen, you need, to, you need to cut me just a little slack because number one, I am 72. You don't look it. You look like you're in your mid-40s. Oh, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, in that case. <laughs> well, I'm gonna call it news lady. Well, that's also condescending. But news person, you're right. You know why? It's an extra syllable. Too much effort to make 52% of the population see themselves in an aspirational way. But I think it just depends on on who you're talking to. When I when I interviewed the cannibal cop, I really didn't want him to know it was comedic because I wanted to I wanted that discomfort and I wanted honesty in his reactions. I mean, mm. if people ask you, then you tell them. Like we never lie to people, but right. um, you know, we we don't we're not like we're a comedy show with a feminist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of need to know basis. And then when I was at the Daily Show, even when people do know you, you still get the craziest reactions from people. I think you know that that show was on for like 14, 15 years by the time I got there. And yeah. everybody who was interviewed knew they were talking to The Daily Show. And still some people didn't know it was comedy. And and the people who did kind of, they're, you know, we got the reactions out of them that we wanted. And I think it's because at the end of the day, people just want to be heard and they mm-hmm. want a platform. And I work really hard to not take people out of context. Like, we're not journalism, but I try to adhere to journalistic integrity to mm-hmm. the extent that we can, because I think that's really important for the process. Like, if we would always say, like, you know, if someone says, like, my favorite color is green, we're not going to make it look like their favorite color is blue. You know, mm-hmm. like, I really, that's really important to me. So if you can get people to trust you, I think that it it makes them feel, like, less scared to to participate and also like nothing particularly with McAfee and Cannibal Cop and the people that I'm interested like nothing I could do would be worse than what they've already been through. Yeah, you're 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 kind of letting them hang themselves with their own words too and, and or is that is that part of the uh the goal or you're just I, wanting to see see what happens? I'm not try- I, I'm not trying in every instance to do like gotcha journalism. Mm-hmm. I think I just want to show a side of somebody that the media hasn't and like with Cannibal Cop, I mean, his enti- he was in solitary confinement his whole life. Gail, I should call him, that's his name. <laughs> but um, he suffered such public trauma and shame without us that when he found out that it, we had organized like a dating game, sorry, spoilers, but he's dating again. And that's that was like the motivation mm-hmm. to talk to him. He was so relieved because he was like... It was like a breath of fresh air for him. Same with McAfee. Like, he was in a Showtime documentary that alleged things that are crazy that may be totally true, but, you know, nothing we could say is more indicting than him being a murdering rapist who eats shit. Mm-hmm. In in terms of uh, you know not <laughs> You're wanting just to going on. <laughs> You're like, no. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go right <laughs> past that. Uh, in terms of uh, taking people out of context, that's I know that that's been a complaint 
of people who've been in these Daily Show field pieces a lot come out after and say, oh, they took me out of context. Have you had to kind of deal with the aftermath of in, in those situations where people are upset by, had, by what you do? Well, I had a situation, I did a field piece that I produced where Asif Mambi was a correspondent and a Republican who ran a voting precinct in North Carolina got fired for being in our piece. But he was on radio after saying he would have done it again. And he said like the N-word a couple times in the mm-hmm. segment and basically said that they're out to um, suppress Democratic votes. And that wasn't taking him out of context. And it was like it's 2013. So it's such a different time. You know, I think we were so much more naive and that shocked us in a way it doesn't sadly now. Um, The only time I got somebody who was angry, it was a piece I did with Sam B on um, fast food worker strikes. And the guy, you might censor this. I I mean, we asked, uh, describe the type of person worth $2 an hour. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't know the PC term for the R word. Mm-hmm. He just said, mm, retarded. <laughs> I don't want to. I, I know. You, you don't want to say it, but that's what he's, you're quoting he him. That's that. what he said. He said that. And it was like, and so that caused a big, you know, kerfluffle. Is that the word? Sure. Uh, <laughs> that's more, that's the worst of word. But, um, the reality is, like, he said so many more indicting awful things in the interview that we didn't put in it. Mm-hmm. And so he was upset. And it turns out his brother was my friend's, like, ex-brother-in-law. So I ran into the brother oh, at, wow. a, at a thing. And he got in my face and was like, you made my brother look like an idiot. And I was like, actually, he said that in the first 15 minutes of our conversation. Do you want to know what he said that we didn't put in? <laughs> and then he was like, you're right. I'm sorry. So I I personally have never had any pieces where people got upset because they were taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, because they weren't taken out of context. Right. Um, there was one piece I thought somebody was going to be upset over, and then she walked away liking the piece, and that scared me more. It was a piece <laughs> about, like, um, the agricultural gag laws, and she worked for an agriculture lobby. And her whole talking point was that, like, big PETA... Mm-hmm. takes footage of animal abuse to to increase their bottom line. And I thought that she sounded like such an idiot, but that is her talking point, and she got to say that, and she like thought she looked great in the piece, and that freaked me out. And that also kind of taught me something interesting about yeah. this type of comedy, which is like when you're when you're when someone is not on your side and you don't agree with them, you have to be careful about about letting them say what they feel. I know that sounds weird. No, I I totally get that. And I think about that a lot, too, in terms of giving people a platform to say the thing that you that you disagree with. Is it is it good because you're exposing it or is it, you know, potentially, you know, bad because you're you're letting them spread that message? It's bad. We know now we didn't know before (laughs) Trump. And now we know that exposure of toxic views is really unhealthy. Mm hmm. So you don't think it, it can have, you know, with something like The Daily Show, you're you're putting it out there to a uh, mostly progressive audience, presumably, um, who are maybe not wouldn't see that otherwise. So maybe it, is there an element of it where you're just kind of letting people know that these things exist? And is, do you think there's a positive in that at all? I think you just have to be careful about what you put out. Like when I was at The Daily Show, John would never have us interview white supremacists mm-hmm. because they're intellectually dishonest and... 
like fame seeking and stupid. I'll say stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Duke, you're an idiot. But, um, you know, I think it's like if people like that are in proximity to power, you kind of have to expose them. But mm-hmm. you just have to be careful about what you air and and how you portray them and and you know i think i i'm still figuring it out like i I think i think we're all coming up to speed on you know on on free speech versus hate speech Mm -hmm. versus like responsibility when you shine a light on these people you know i think the media did us such a disservice with the amount of attention it gave to trump which is partly why we are where we are and i think that we can all learn from that going forward but I don't have answers. Yeah. Um, I do want to go back to, to John McAfee because it's just such a um, bonkers uh, segment that you that you put out in the, the second half of the special. Um, why did you want to talk to him specifically? What, what was the what was the drive there? He's he's running for president and I think he'll be a better option than Trump. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in I can't, the sense that anyone would be or that uh, that you actually th- not any not anyone would yeah. be. I mean, I'm afraid of Pence. We'll see what happens with that. I'm not as afraid of Pence as I am of Trump. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's weird to also kind of say that because it's like admitting that you have an agenda, which is like apparently people who work in the news comedy space or even the news space. We all have to pretend we don't have an agenda. Right. but Everybody does. Yeah. Everybody does. Whether it's clicks or um, a political agenda or wanting, you know, notoriety. Like, there are a lot of journalists on Twitter, and part of me wonders, like, you know, everyone has to be a brand now, so mm-hmm. your journalism comes in second to your exposure, and it just that's part of, I think, the problem of a lot of contemporary news media, which is a totally separate point. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, to your question of why I I don't even know what your question was why I talked to why why, I why John McAfee what, because what, what made you want to talk to him because you know he is running for president so I feel like you should you know we should the gloves are off now we should be talking to to people who have presidential aspirations and and getting their thoughts on record you know sooner rather than later mm-hmm. um. And when you were there, did you? There's you mentioned the guns, and it, that's a big part of the the segment is is just his gun and his armed guards and all that. Did you? Was it scary? Was it? Um, did you? Did you worry about what that would, what that could turn into? Um, at the time, I mean, I I I sussed it out. Uh, whatever that means. Like I know I knew that he was running for president. Um. He, we had full transparency as to who we were. Um, mm-hmm. I think he had. I don't know if we gave him our socials, but we gave him like a lot of information on us, just mm-hmm. in good faith. And I didn't think it was going to escalate to a violent situation, but I could have been wrong. Um, my crew uh, had put a lot of trust in me, and I, you know, we handled everything really delicately. Um, but yeah, it was alarming to see uh, so many gunmen. Uh, and at one point, a gun was like kind of pointed at me, but he he didn't mean to. It just was like he had the he had a semi-automatic like resting on his knee, and it was like facing. It just they 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 weren't necessarily the most trained mm-hmm. uh, gun people. But it yeah, I mean it, yeah, it was scary, but not not in a way that I felt like we didn't have you know control of the situation, even though we didn't. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems like so much of your of your work on this show relies on improv, and I'm wondering what that kind of having guns in the scene, real guns, does to to your ability to kind of execute that that improv. Execute, yeah. Fun. <laughs> um, you know, asking him about like the Me Too allegations, that was the moment that was a little tricky. But I also felt like I had a responsibility to, given allegations against him. I felt like if I didn't ask him about that, then it would have done a disservice to the piece. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought the interview went well. I thought the Cannibal Cop interview was funnier because nobody was pointing a gun at me. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm so happy about the response that we got given the situation. I, that's sadly the one thing I was weir- weirdly nervous and worried about. I'm like, are we going to have comedy if like I can't ask him the questions I want to ask him because mm-hmm. we're surrounded by armed men. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the other big, uh, the other the other segments on the show that um, you have really focus on your interactions with uh, young men, uh, f- sort of frat kids in college, and then these young uh, gamers. Um, what? Why did you? What is it about that sort of demographic that you wanted to zero in on, um, and that you thought would be good for the for the comedy and for the points you were trying to make? I want to talk to Adult Swim's demo, which I think is increasingly Mm. female, but it's a lot of young guys. And I think both of the issues are involving, you know, sexual harassment and assault. So there's overlap there. But um, I had comedic ideas of how to get into them. and And I think comedy is a really good tool to talk to people. And if you can make something actually funny, but have the issue be real and, and, and like a serious issue. I think that that's just a good way to talk to people, like meet them where they're at, talk mm-hmm. about campus rape, but, but in a funny way. And then, you know, that, that piece, I really like that piece because it's weirdly ambiguous, especially at the end. But mm-hmm. it, it, to me, all I wanted was to find like a way to, get people talking about consent and what consent means. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that piece did that. The only criticism that we got, which I'm still shocked by, there was a there's a men's rights podcast out of Canada run by women, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and they got mad because one of their lines was like, you know, feminists, um, they have sex toys too, but at least these guys, at least because we had these like lifelike sex dolls, they were like, at least they're fucking the whole doll and not just the dick. Like, <laughs> that was their complaint, that, like, feminist sex toys don't have faces. <laughs> feminist sex toys can't look back at you. Just wait. But, you know, I support women in tech. But that was funny to me, that that was like... And then also, I do read the YouTube comments because... um I can handle them. I have a mm-hmm. neuro. I have like a hypercritical Jewish mother, so it just feels like home. Yeah. And in that piece, we had this one statistic about campus assault and rape, um, which the statistic that we we did a lot of research and we found that like one in four undergrads have reported being assaulted or harassed on college campuses. That seems like it's the most accurate statistic from all the research we've done. Mm-hmm. There's a wonky stat that's like from the Federal Bureau of Statistics, but the way that their methodology was, I'm getting in the weeds, but I've been called out on this, but their methodology was like calling 
people and being like, have you been raped? And then people would just say yes or no, and they didn't count, like, if you were drunk or with any drugs or alcohol involved. So that statistic is completely, I think it was like one in 600. or It was like a statistic that a lot of people cite, but the methodology was bonkers. So I did a lot of research finding this statistic because I knew that when you're arguing with people, a lot of times people talk about stats and you're like, the issue is not statistics. Like I went to college. (laughs) I could tell Mm -hmm. you on my fingers and toes the amount of people that had messed up situations like but we did so we got a lot of heat online just from that statistic that to this day is I think the most accurate one I've still found but people were there was like a comment that was like feminists lie about rape stats they lie about global warming they lie about and then the next comment was like yeah you're right they totally lie about rape stats but global warming's real man (laughs) so it's just like funny to see our critics kind of butting heads with each other yeah that was that's always fun. Yeah, um, you mentioned that you're not playing a character like in the way that someone like Sasha Baron Cohen is, but you are kind of playing a character. So what? How would you describe that character, and how how is she different from the real Jenna? I mean, <laughs> the I don't like to speak in the third person, <laughs> but I don't think I you know would like have a a real conversation with somebody like pointing guns at my face if I could help it. Mm. Um, I think, I think there's like a, it's like a little ballsier, obviously, cause you're on camera and it's, I mean, I think I'm channeling, I'm trying to channel like a Barbara Walters type, uh, mm-hmm. maybe a little pseudo-intellectual, maybe a little, like, I don't, you know, if someone says newsman, I'm not going to be like, Meh. like, it's just a little bit, mm-hmm. a heightened version, you know, for entertainment purposes. Mm-hmm. Coming up after the break, Jenna Friedman talks about the hardest job she's ever had in comedy. So I want to go back to The Daily Show a bit. So you were you were there from... 2013 to 2015, is that 12 right? 12 to 15. 12 to 15. John's 15? last three years. John's last three years. Okay, so what, um, I guess just first, what did you really learn from, from that experience that you've taken into into this show? Um, I mean, the field producer job was one of the hardest jobs in comedy. Wyatt Snack actually recommended me for the job. Oh, wow. And at first I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. What is a field producer? And he, to his credit, he was like so helpful at the beginning. And um, you're basically like a writer and director, but your cast are unwilling participants and Mm -hmm. you're in hostile locations and you have to make like a short film in in, with very tricky um, components. And it it really taught me so much and it helped. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Help me make this show 100%. And then just in general, just in terms of directing and writing and, you know, what like how much you have to prepare and then how much improv you have to do on top of that to get comedy out of these scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, you got there a few years after um, there was this kind of famous uh, piece that Jezebel ran about the that was called The Daily Show's uh, Woman Problem. And it kind of accused the show and, and John Stewart of running a boys club. And I'm just curious, when you were you aware of that when you went to work there? And was that a concern for you at all? Or did that, was that something that you thought about? Do I have my finger on the pulse of the feminist blogosphere? <laughs> um, at the time, no, I, I was aware of that. But I came from Letterman, which is like so much. Yeah. I mean, I came from a situation where uh, my boss had a very public sex scandal with like a young blonde woman who looked like me. <laughs> so... <laughs> I can only speak to my experience of The Daily Show, and it was great. I I mean, John was the best boss I've ever had. Uh, the field department was great. Tim Greenberg was the head of the field department, and he's he's a consultant on Soft Focus, one mm-hmm. of the smartest guys I know. Um, really smart women around. I got to work with Sam B., who's been like a hero of mine forever. Uh, so I had a really great experience of The Daily Show. And... You know, I think everything can be a boys club to some degree. And I can't speak to that article because it was a couple years before I was there. But for people to be more cognizant about making things not a boys club, I don't think hurts anyone other than boys. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I had a great experience there. Um, You mentioned, uh, you know, that maybe the experience was not as great at at Letterman. Um, And I know you've said it wasn't a great fit for you. You were there for a year. Um, Yeah, they were really nice. It was the first time Dave ever had two female writers on staff. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was cool. But it was I think it it was just like at a time where maybe he was checked out um, and the writers were trying to scramble to figure out what he wanted, but I think he was just checked out at that time. Like, I only had two interactions with him in the year that I was there. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to write to someone if you don't really know them. Were you writing monologue jokes? or what No, was your... sketches and top tens. Mm-hmm. The top ten is, like, such a such an iconic uh, format, but it's very specific, and it has... It's a very, you know, was that something... Was that hard to kind of... That was actually do something easier. new in that in that space. The well, the top tens I felt like were really easy. I guess this is kind of like when Twitter. It was when Twitter was starting, and I tweeted all the time. And Dave had all these jokes about Twitter, so he had a laptop open with tweets, and I would always get friends texting me being like, your tweets were on the show, but my tweets are so insane. And they never would have been approved on the show. Dave just had his laptop open and I was like one of the people he followed. Mm. So they would cut to the laptop and then they'd have like a scary tweet of mine about like rape or something. <laughs> like, it was just like, it was pretty funny. I don't know why rape, but just like something that Dave wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the top tens, I remember one of the first top tens I got on 
my grandmother had just passed away and um, Dave's mom was like turning 83 and it was top 10 words of wisdom from Dave's mom. And so I just kind of channeled my grandma and I got like five of the 10 top 10s mm-hmm. and he would always put his favorite one at like number five. And it was like, uh, no one cares how you feel. And it's just like not even a joke, but it's like just such a truism that would come out mm-hmm. of the mouth of a depression era like yeah. greatest generation woman. And so that was like a special moment because I just started the job and I got half of the top 10 on the show with his mom. And I just, it was sweet. It was sweet to like hear her say like, he's like number five. And she's like, no one cares how you feel. And then Dave laughed and I <laughs> laughed and like just thought of my grandma. It was sweet. That's nice. Um, were you a were you a Letterman fan growing up, or what were your sort of uh, comedy influences when you were when you were growing up? I'm so young, so I don't remember. <laughs> no, I loved early Letterman, early, not even early. I loved early Letterman, but also like the mid '90s. I remember we would watch that. Um, it was so good. And then I I just I loved In Living Color. I love the state. Um, uh. Yeah, I mean, I always was a fan of Sarah Silverman from as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just liked weird, dark stuff, too. I loved, like, 80s horror movies and thought they were funny. And then did you really start um, as in stand-up, or how did you kind of—what was your way into the, the comedy world? It's really unfunny. I wrote a paper about improv in college because mm-hmm. I was in Chicago and I was studying anthropology— in your whole senior year, you have to write about one topic, and I just kind of fell into improv. So I lived downtown, and I interned at Improv Olympic, and then they were like, if you take a class, you can pay for—you can see all the shows for free. Mm. And so then I took, like, one or two classes, and it was 2004 before it was really, like, as big as it is now. Yeah, And I just fell in love. Improv is like my rosebud, but it's so hard to do and so cheesy, you know? But I just, it was like an adult learning how to play make-believe and being your own writer, director, and actor at the same time, and it was so cool. And I had no, it wasn't on my radar or something that I thought existed. So when I found it, I was like, wait a minute, people do this? People can, like, play for their careers? And in Chicago, you can, because it's so affordable there. it's Chicago. <laughs> but it was such a, and the community was so cool. It was people who had, like, my teachers were, like, uh, TJ Jagodowski and Al Samuels and Susan Messing and Noah Gregoropoulos. I don't know if you know any of these people, but they're these <laughs> Chicago legends who've been doing improv for the love of it for, like, two decades at the time. And they just, it was so cool to learn from them. Yeah. And I'm- so that, yeah, that got me into comedy, and then I got into stand-up and, and writing out there. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like improv plays a huge role in, in what you're doing now, though. I mean, it, in terms of interacting with real people, and it's like, it's almost like doing improv with people who don't know that they're doing improv with you, which I guess could just be called, like, interacting with people. Or but... beginner <laughs> improv. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so what's, what is that, how is it, what is it like to do improv with with non-comedians, I guess. I, for the gaming segment, I thought I was going to get punched in the face. I really did. I had a conversation with uh, one of my producers just about, like, should we have, like, Velcro gloves where their hands just have to be, like, (laughs) stuck to the chairs? Because I don't want them to punch me. 
To prep our gamers for the full female experience, I thought it might be helpful to introduce them to some subtle sexism first. Let's just do a little twirl. Okay. If it's loose, let me know. The last guy was a little bit like, just kind of broader in the crotch area. Oh, really? So this is like a remote. I'm sure you're probably used to things like yeah. this size in your hand. Pop quiz. The O-N, what is that? Well, it turns the game on. Perfect. Okay, the on button. Sorry about that. Yeah, I could eat you, you smell so good. <laughs> no, that's okay. Turn a 180. Yeah. I know, like guys aren't that great at math. What do you see in front of you? The wood door. Great, okay. Have so much fun, and, and please don't forget to smile. Okay. You know, I, I think it's like so much about improv that's critical as I pontificate mm -hmm. is listening and picking up on on cues, verbal and nonverbal mm -hmm. cues. I mean, with the McAfee situation, it was, you know, critical that you just had a sense the whole time. And maybe that's, like, why I wanted him to know that I was in charge so that I could kind of control the situation as opposed to having it. Because I was also the only one when we showed up at his compound that they didn't search. They didn't search me for a gun. And that kind of felt weirdly sexist. Mm. But I think... It, and I'm just thinking about this now as we talk, but, you know, I wanted, it was a scary situation and I felt like I could control it and I wanted to. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, yeah, you have to be aware of just all sorts of cues. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with, with McAfee that he, you know, he treated you differently because you're a woman, but maybe that played you were able to find a way to make that to your advantage it if in those scenarios it's so much to your advantage like um i did a film on the campaign trail last year where i played a field producer and these two guys um they're so funny their comedy group is called the good liars um and uh we they trolled people on the campaign trail but there's this one situation where they were handing out trump armbands this mm -hmm. is like 2015 2015 or 16. Yeah, I actually got to see it and it was, it was you really saw great. It? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's a really no fun one movie. saw it and they edited it. They edited it in like three weeks. Tell us what it was called so that people Undecided can find it. Undecided the movie. And I thought it was insane. Uh, I think that because they only had three weeks to edit it right before the election that, you know, it could have obviously been like, you know, like anything. It could have been better, but I think they pulled off an insane amount of crazy and, and made a narrative out of it. And there's, like, comedy and some of the narratives, like, so bad that we're trying mm, to, like, connect yeah. the scenes. But there was this one scene where they were handing out Trump armbands at a rally. And uh, I was, like, just for, with my producer brain, and to their credit, they were cool. Like, being an actor and mm -hmm. giving production notes is not always people don't like that. And I'm fully aware of that. But in this scenario, I was like, the only way for the comedy to read is to actually show people sitting in the town hall wearing the armbands. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, we can't get in there because everybody recognizes us now. Yeah. And like, I kind of like uh, me and a female DP uh, were she um, Charlotte Kaufman, really great. I kind of talked to her and I was like, would you want to just see if we can get in? Mm -hmm. And we just showed up being like, they're like, who are you? And I was like, we're with Women for Trump. And she's like, we're with Undecided the Movie. And they're like, which one? And we're like, <laughs> um, Undecided the Movie is following Women for Trump. And they're like, okay, go in. And so we just, like, I got right behind him. But it was 
sadly, 100% because we were women and people don't take women seriously. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage. Was that the same uh, event where you were uh, pretending to be on the on the phone behind him? Mm-hmm. That was that was very funny. What, what Where did that was that um, in the script or did that no, come that out was, of that moment? I couldn't sleep for two days because I was trying to think of other things I could have done. Besides the obvious, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I was like, maybe I should have fallen asleep, and or maybe because it just was a, it was like an improvised moment where it's just like, what's, what do we do in this situation that mm-hmm. we could put in the movie that fits with the character? Mm-hmm. It was before all the Russia stuff, so I couldn't ask him about that before people knew about it. I don't know. I, I, I lost sleep over that. I was, it was a lot. You lost sleep over... Just the opportunity. I was, you know, the only person under 60 or 70 seated in the front row, and he looked right at me, and he shook everyone's hand, and I wouldn't shake his hand, and then he... I have photos of him just standing in front of me, and I think he had a sense that I was, like, not a friendly person, Um, but I didn't want to touch him, and and I could feel the energy in that room and how much charisma he had and how excited people were and we had been on the campaign trail all year and it was really worrisome because no one had no one had that command that he had Mm -hmm. were you any less surprised than the average person do you think uh when he won because of that experience after brexit i thought he could win but Mm -hmm. then the press around me was so i mean i was in new york people were so excited and and by the way, like, he didn't win. I mean, Hillary won democratically if we don't count the Electoral College, which is our relic of slavery. But <laughs> um, so that's something we have. That, that's on a separate note. Became president. Okay. Yeah. It was, in, was um, uh, installed into office. Um, yeah, no, I, I thought after Brexit, I, I thought it, it could happen. Um, with the show, with Soft Focus, I mean, do you, I don't know what plans there are to maybe make more of it, but is that a direction that you would want to to move it in, in terms of um, speaking to other presidential candidates or trying to do something in the world of, of Trump and, and politics? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the feedback we've gotten is that, you know, we kind of... Uh, just the two interviews that we've done in this show. I also interviewed Ken Kratz for Gothamist in a similar fashion. He's the guy from Making a Murderer. Mm. And that was really fun. But uh, they kind of picked up on us taking white men to task. But I think it. I don't want to specifically pick on any demographics. So I would like to kind of uh, not shift gears at all, but just maybe expand the pool of, of people that we talk to. I, I mean... Yeah, anyone in power. I think this type of work is really helpful for people in just kind of documenting um, people in power in a way. I wish I wish people made, you know, Trump look stupider earlier. And the thing is, it's like he always made him. I don't know if it would have helped, but I but media matters. And I think, you know. We have to find ways to kind of uh, scrutinize people in power differently than we have in the past so that if they're shitty people, they don't get to be in power as easily as they do now. Mm -hmm. Coming up, Jenna Friedman reveals what it was like to be in the Roseanne reboot writer's room when Roseanne got fired. So you left The Daily Show, you said, around when when Jon Stewart 
left? Um, was that a why did you decide to leave then? And did was it did it have to do with that kind of um, changeover from from John to Trevor Noah? I really like Trevor. I just that was the hardest job, and I wanted to get back into stand up. So I uh, had the I did a show in the Edinburgh Fringe um, called American Cunt on iTunes and I'm doing another I'm actually going back to Edinburgh this year and doing another hour uh, show that I'm developing now but I just you know I've been there three years and I had other stuff I wanted to do Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things you did in the interim is write for the Connors um, on ABC and I'm just really interested in that um, because what what was that like because I don't think you you didn't work on the the original Roseanne reboot right but then you came in to do uh, so Roseanne saw a stand-up set of mine on Conan and invited me to write for Roseanne. And I always liked her show mm-hmm. and the legacy of the of the show back in the day. And I was aware of her Trump Trumpiness. And I started following her on Twitter. And I actually, just because her feed was so insane, I remember thinking, like, how does she have a show? Because her tweets were awful on, across the board. Like, she was tweeting conspiracy the- theories about Soros, too. And then I, it inspired me to just, like, delete my entire feed forever, even though I'm, I I know I don't have anything bad. I just, like, was like, how is this person tweeting this stuff? Yeah. And then uh, I also, you know, I knew that she was a Trump supporter. I do feel like if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I have a very obvious, like, liberal or progressive sensibility, and I wanted to I wanted to write for a Trump supporter and I wanted to write for a network because, as I said before, media matters and and people really watch network TV. And Mm -hmm. it's just not something I've been I've had exposure to or learned how to do. So I was really excited to to be in that environment. And then on our first day, um, she tweeted that and I'm like driving onto the lot and I'm and I read it. And I was like, okay, well, now <laughs> now we're done. Thank God, you know, everybody in the room, even though it actually impacted us, I think I can speak for most of the writers, people, everybody was, you know, uh, oh, <laughs> I don't want to speak for anyone other than well, myself. Well, you can speak for yourself, yeah. I'll speak for myself. I was happy that uh, ABC uh, canceled her show. I think people need to be held accountable for their words. I wish more people were not just women and women in comedy. But um, uh, and then when the show restructured, I you know I I was invited to to go back and and everybody was really kind and it was a a cool experience to to write on that show. But it was a different show than the one I had signed up for. It was very much more about a family getting over the loss of the matriarch and. Mm. It, the cast was incredibly talented and the writers were really talented. And so it was cool to be part of it. Is that something that you would continue doing or I don't know what the status of it is, but. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think network TV is, is really powerful and I want to be, it's hard. It's hard for me. It's not intuitive. And I want to, I want to be able to crack that nut. Mm Mm-hmm. Is that a Roseanne uh, reference? Does she have a nut no. farm or something? <laughs> oh, crack that nut, Jesus. Um, sure. <laughs> um, well, uh, before we go, so what, what I like to do at the end of these episodes is kind of go through a little bit of a, a speed round. Um, and in this case, what I would love to talk about is some of the are some of the people who you uh, worked with on the field pieces at The Daily Show. 
So I'm going to list off some names, and I would just love to hear sort of one memory that sticks out um, from from working with these people. I think these are all people that you worked with, but if they're not, we can you can just say pass. Um, so the first one is John Oliver. Uh, I didn't work directly with him, but I went. You want just a word? No, He's not not a so word. So sharp, no. <laughs> so funny. I, I meant more like a, a memory or a um, a story or or just something that that you think of when you when one you of think the about first. Them. Field pieces I watched, I shadowed the director. I forget who was the field producer on it, but Oliver was a correspondent. And I f- he was talking to this, like there was like a panel of people and one of them was like a primatologist. And I don't even remember the joke, but I've like never laughed so hard at how like he just was so funny and quick in, in like an improvised field, field segment scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so next, uh, Jessica Williams. I love Jessica as well. She's, uh, I did my, was it my second piece with Jessica on pubic lice? Um, It was about how pubic lice are an endangered species. And we shot at John Waters' house. And um, I remember Jessica asked John about pubic lice. And he he said that it was romantic because you shared something with your partner and it wasn't fatal. Uh, Asif Manvi. Um, Asif, uh, I did a ton of pieces with Asif. Uh, he's, he's still very much a friend and he's a brilliant actor. And I have one memory of us doing a piece on fracking and, uh, I'd wanted to do a piece on fracking forever, but we didn't find, we couldn't find a comedic way in until this horrible thing happened where there was a fracking explosion and Chevron, uh, tried to make everyone feel better by giving them pizza. So we made this, like, pizza gas mask for this piece. And Asif was like, this is not... He was always like, "You're not, this is going to get cut. Please don't make me wear this. <laughs> and I was like, please, please, please wear it. And he he was a good sport. And then I made it. We got into the piece, but just barely. He was right. But then I was like, we have to find a way to keep this in the piece. Just so you would be right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Michael Che. Um, I love Che. All these people I love. Uh, Che and I worked on one piece about the opioid epidemic. And this is a story that we, we talked to this guy who, like, he was like an independent journalist, but then really funded by Pfizer. And so we, that was a gotcha piece where we're like, he's like, opioids are fine for chronic pain. And Che was like, it's not like someone's paying you to say that. And the guy's face just dropped. (laughs) But there was this crazy moment off camera, which I, I wish we had set up the camera sooner because the guy had just had knee surgery. And I had asked him, like, are you on opioids now? And he said, I would never touch them with, like, a 10-foot pole. And oh it was God. so sad, but I wish we got that on camera. Yeah. Did that uh, did that make you adjust at all, like, when you started uh, rolling on these on these pieces to, to make sure you didn't miss something like that? To some degree. Yeah. 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 Um, Jordan Klepper? Jordan's brilliant. Um, Jordan and I did a piece, we were working on a piece in, uh, Florida when John announced his, like, retirement from the show, and we were working with this gun nut who was, like, a Second Amendment attorney, and even he, I, Jordan was, like, the one, like, a correspondent where I genuinely, I genuinely would just, like, ha- I'd get, like, giggle fits while he would be, uh, in the chair just because he was su- he's such a brilliant improviser. I, I've known him for a decade when I was in Chicago interning at Improv Olympic. He was on World News Tonight, which was like this like political improv show. He was so funny. 
And then um, we were working together on a piece right when John said that he was leaving. And this gun nut was like sad about it, too. And this is less about Jordan, but just more about like the power of like John being able to unite like conservatives and liberals to some degree, which I, I think is almost maybe impossible now. But yeah, it was cool that, you know, that a guy who was like so pro gun was like really bummed about John leaving The Daily Show. Just because he liked him for for other reasons that had yeah, nothing I mean, to do with John, guns. John, I think, had more of a like a libertarian bent than even like a liberal. But you know, I don't know. I think we're so polarized now, and I think I'm I miss John being out there because he had this unifying thing about mm-hmm. about him that I think a lot of people identified with him, who aren't necessarily progressive. Yeah, it's interesting to think about whether he could, if he had, if he hadn't left, how that would have changed, or if he would have. John's like trumpet. No, <laughs> no, he's yeah. not. Um, and then let's end on someone who's a, a favorite of both yours and mine, uh, Samantha B. I think Sam is why I ended up staying at the Daily Show. My first piece was with her. My like trial piece. We did a piece about women in the military. That was one of my favorite pieces that I did there, and it. In the middle of production, Leon Panetta lifted the ban on women in combat, and that actually changed our entire story. And we were able to pull like a great piece out, even though we had shot the first half already to be something else. And I just think she's so wonderful, and she's so kind, and like just and uh, another just tiny thing about her, she had like no vanity, mm-hmm. so she just I don't know, it was really cool just to kind of see like someone that you kind of want to be like and how low key and down to earth she she is that that was cool what has it been like for you to to see her go on to the her show and and the success that she's had I love had? it I love it I think her show is so brilliant and so necessary and uh I'm shocked that it it wasn't on the daily show but TBS has been great and uh it's just been awesome well, Jenna Friedman, thank you so much for coming out. I'm hoping that we get more soft focus in the future. Um, so we'll we'll hold out hope for that. And next time we talk, I might have a lower uh, Elizabeth Holmes voice. <laughs> you can work on that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jenna Friedman for being on today's episode of The Last Laugh. You can watch her two soft focus specials right now for free on adultswim.com. And hopefully there will be more where those came from in the near future. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith for Starburns Audio and Scott Porch for Himalaya Media. And this episode was engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazel. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. I think we know the rest of the story. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.